Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. The Canadian political landscape is filled with issues of real change and public interest, like the appearance of Maxime Bernier's new political party and the notwithstanding clause, section 33 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. I spoke with Robert Barassa in 1995 about why he introduced the notwithstanding clause to, as he said, protect French Canada from the Supreme Court of Canada. You'll hear that. And I spoke with Brian Peckford, the former Newfoundland and Labrador Premier, who said the notwithstanding clause is being used appropriately by Ontario Premier Doug Ford. The murder of 13-year-old Marissa Shen in Vancouver and another activist judge in Canada's story, Scott Newark, former Alberta prosecutor, former executive director of the Canadian Police Association, joined me to speak about these and other issues. So now, some of the things I want to share with you. On the issue of the notwithstanding clause, while there have been significant voices who have uh, shouted against Doug Ford's decision to use the notwithstanding clause, if necessary, to uh, pass his legislation cutting the Toronto City Council numbers significantly, I, I haven't heard anyone say that he hasn't got the right to do it. Somebody probably has, but he does have the right to do it. Now, have a listen to this. Listen to a premier of Quebec talking to me in 1995, the week after the Quebec sovereignty referendum, where we were on the razor's edge, and by less than one percentage point, Canada survived. By less than one percentage point, Canada survived. Just less than one percent voted um, yes for Quebec to secede, just more then 1% voted for Quebec to stay in Canada. So that was 95, so October 30th. A week later, I'm in California attending an event where Robert Barassa is speaking, the premier who enacted the notwithstanding clause, to overrule the Supreme Court. I'm going over this again because people join us all the time and didn't hear what I said earlier. So Robert Barassa was the premier of Quebec at the time the Supreme Court of Canada said no, Bill 101, the French primacy law, is in violation of the Constitution, and so, you know, it's invalid. And Robert Barassa said, no, it isn't. And your decision is invalid because I'm invoking the notwithstanding clause to protect Bill 101 and French culture. So one week after that hugely emotional event of the Quebec sovereignty referendum that we won by less than 1%, we collectively in Canada... I'm in California talking to Premier Barrasso, and here's what happened. Here's, and let me just give you a couple of seconds off the top. What you hear at the beginning is some of the irritants that had preceded his decision with the, the notwithstanding clause, issues that have been talked about across Canada, which Quebec had engaged in and had irritated many Canadians, including removing the Canadian flag from the main legislature room in uh, the Quebec Parliament. Have a listen. Mr. Bourassa, I'd like to come back to a point uh, several uh, irritants that have been brought up by my listeners about mm -hmm. Quebec, and yeah. primarily when you were the Premier of Quebec. Mm -hmm. The French is the only official language of Quebec. That was an irritant. The French-only highway signs were seen as an irritant by much of the rest of Canada. The non-flying of the Canadian flag in the, uh, in the Quebec legislature 
uh, we could take one by one. All right. Uh, we have the Canadian flag uh, and the uh, Quebec legislature. In the Salon Rouge, yes. The Salon Rouge? Yeah, I, right. put, I put it back. Oh, you put it back? Yeah, right. when I was elected in 85, I decided... So Monsieur Levesque had taken it away then? Or, yes, or yeah, I think Monsieur Levesque uh, took away, if my memory is good, but I remember that I give instructions. So we thank you for that. Yes. So, so no, when, when there's so the... You could correct your <laughs> listener <laughs> <laughs> about that. When we, when we talk about the, uh, the uh, French as the only official language of Quebec, you yesterday explained your rationale for doing that. I wonder if you'd mind doing that again. Uh, I would say that uh, if there is uh, if there is one reason uh, which uh, could, uh, in my view, could weaken the federal system as such, uh, it would be that Quebec does not have the powers to protect their language and. Uh, this is showing clearly that we have the powers to protect our language uh, and making French the official language. Uh, my argument was to, uh, that I want to, to uh, as Quebec Premier, my ultimate responsibility, and I'm the only one in North America having that, being responsible to a majority of French-speaking people, I have to take action to protect the French culture. And the Quebecers should be reassured that their government is conscious of that. But this does not mean that we have to limit unduly the individual liberties. Of course, we had a problem with the signs, but we solved that finally. We, I had to delay the respect of my commitment because I said in '85 that we will change the law. Instead of doing it uh, in '88, I did it a few years after. Uh, so I had to, uh, I had to add additional few years. But it, it's very important that we should protect the French culture for one simple reason. Thirty years ago, uh, French Canadians in Canada were about 30 percent of the population. Now it's between 24 and 25. So demography is not on our side. Uh, therefore, uh, the government has to take some action to correct that and uh, saying to, to Canadians, uh, we, you agree that Quebec is, uh, is an important factor for an original Canada, uh, for the distinctness of Canada, we could say, compared with the U.S., but the, on the other hand, you have to accept that the Quebec government, uh, taking into account that we are a small minority in North America, should take some uh, exceptional action to protect the culture. So that was uh, 23 years ago, that conversation. And Barassa said he had to take exceptional action to protect the French culture, and so he used the knot with standing clause to overrule the Supreme Court of Canada. And then they introduced Bill 62, which retroactively protected, in the government's, Quebec government's mind, all Quebec legis uh, law from judges declaring it invalid. Premier Brian Peckford joins me on uh, the show. Premier Peckford was, of course, a progressive conservative premier of Newfoundland and Labrador and was uh, in power at the time. The, all, the, all of the um, talk and the activities concerning the Charter and the Constitution were, were underway. Premier, thank you very much for taking the time. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. So 
you make the point very clearly that Premier Ford is within his rights constitutionally and within the charter to go ahead and use the notwithstanding clause to overturn the decision by the Ontario court judge. Uh, explain it to us, please, in terminology that, that we can all understand. I've been trying, but I think you'll do a much better job than me. Well, I don't know about that, but uh, the, the, uh, the Constitution of the country, the Constitution Act of 1867, was amended uh, in 1982, uh, notwithstanding the fact that there are even so-called constitutional experts out there talking about the Constitution is old and belongs to another century and belongs to a time when we were a fur-trading colony and all that nonsense. Uh, it was amended in 1982, which is hardly when uh, Canada was a fur-trading colony. And part of that um, patriation, um, returning the Constitution home to Canada so we could amend it in Canada, we not only brought it home, if you will, we changed it and added to it. And one of the things we added to the Constitution, which is now sort of called the Constitution of 1982, was the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And in there, the, uh, the, the governments of Canada uh, decided to put down in writing uh, the, the various rights and freedoms that we really already exercised and enjoyed in this country. Uh, Mr. Diefenbaker's Bill of Rights back uh, long before uh, 1982 sort of uh, highlighted that, as did other conventions and precedents uh, in the Canadian system. But it was written down, put in writing. And in writing was put uh, the whole business of freedom of press, you know, freedom of assembly, freedom of voting, freedom, all those freedoms and rights that we had, and we added to it uh, extensively. The problem with all constitutions, of course, is that, is that uh, many of the principles that are put in the Constitution are very general, and they're left to be adjudicated by the courts. Now, what's happened in our country in the last uh, 10 or 15 years, and almost right after the Charter Rights and Freedoms was uh, put in place, was that judges became very liberal uh, in their interpretation of what was in the the Constitution. And now we have today, to get right to the point, we ha and, and part of the Constitution also was a section called 33, which notwithstanding uh, all of these rights and freedoms, there may be uh, uh, times in the future of Canada where a given province or even the federal government has exercised its legitimate jurisdictional authority to do A, B, or C, which they were legal and constitutional to do, but which gets overridden ridden by a judge interpreting this new Charter Rights and Freedoms in a manner which says that while the province has a right and power to do it under one section, we, under the new Charter Rights and Freedoms, are going to override it because we think it impinges upon uh, other parts of the Charter. However, uh, the the uh, the patriation and the charter would never have gone through if there wasn't an out clause. We're a confederation, where we are we are provinces and we are the federal government, and there's an out clause, section 33, the notwithstanding clause, as it says, which says that any province or the federal government has the right to override a decision uh, of a judge that was basing something on the Charter Rights and Freedoms, if, in fact, uh, the province wants to do it and it's within their jurisdiction. And, of course, the, prov the municipalities are within the jurisdiction of the 
the provinces and the province of Ontario, 92.8 of the Constitution. Uh, the judge saw fit to really liberally interpret one section of the Charter to override a new bill that the province had brought in to reduce the size of city council in Ontario and said that this impinged upon and therefore we're going to override it with this decision. Meanwhile, Premier Ford and the government of Ontario said, well, fine and dandy, we shall exercise our power in the same way as you exercise yours to override this over. And Premier, we are, we, are, we are where we are. What do you make of Jean Chrétien, Roy Romano, the former Premier of Saskatchewan, and Roy McMurtry, the former Attorney General, Progressive Conservative Attorney General for Ontario, and then the Chief Justice for the province, uh, to all three in uh, together, I was going to say in tandem, but if it's more than two, it can't be. All three together are being highly critical of Premier Ford's decision. Well, it's very fu- funny, funny, really, because they were part of the patriation process, and they approved through their governments, and they were at the conference that I was at in 1962 where the patriation was uh, finalized and then brought to back to the governments and and made the law of Canada, they supported the Charter. But right now it seems, like so many others in Canada, that they only support certain parts of the Charter, but not all of it. So these three attorneys general, well, the prime minister, former prime minister and two attorneys general, it's really strange to the average citizen of Canada to see what they're doing now. They were there, physically there supported their governments, who supported this full charter, including Section 33, and now they're opposing something that they approved. From my point of view, as a person who had been there, I'm not surprised at all, because uh, their governments were very, uh, what shall I say, belligerent about uh, certain parts of the uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms, this being one of them. But I would have thought that with all this time gone by, and with the Charter being there as the law of Canada, that they wouldn't select those parts that they want to approve and not support those parts now. So that's more, I hear you saying it's more of a political decision they've undertaken. Well, this is the other problem we've got here, is that a lot of people are coming out. Any any, uh, bills like this or any actions like this have really three parts. Is it legal and constitutional? What's its policy? Do you support its policy? And what's the political ramifications? Well, we can all argue over the policy. We can all argue over the political wisdom or lack thereof of doing this. But on the legal, and and therefore, the thing gets confused. And a lot of Canadians out there listening to programs, reading newspapers, in on the Internet, suddenly see that some of these so-called leading people who are supposed to know all about this are confusing the policy and the political with the legal and constitution. Let's mm-hmm. be very clear. Mm-hmm. Section 33 of the same charter that the judge ruled against Ontario on also has Section 33 just as valid, just as valid as what the judge used in his from Section 2B. And this is totally legal and constitutional, and Premier Ford has every right in the world to initiate Section 33 as he sees it. Premier Packford, uh, please, I, I want to ask you about Bernie in a minute, but the you've said that without the notwithstanding clause, there's no charter and there's no repatriation of the Constitution. It's not going to happen. In a very narrow sense, could you speak to that, please? Yes. At the time of the, uh, the patriation, like all national um, uh, 
conferences and documents that are produced from the French Revolution to the American Revolution and the American uh, thing of independence, our 1867 uh, uh, Act of Constitution, which brought the country together. These are grand bargains. There are there are uh, negotiations and there are compromises to make. And this was a grand bargain, the patriation. And part of that grand bargain was that in the same way as you will write down all these rights and freedoms that everybody has, you also have certain clauses and phrases which are just as important to ensure that there isn't any tyranny of the minority, there isn't any tyranny of the judiciary, there isn't any tyranny of the bureaucracy, that it's well balanced between the provinces and the federal government. And so Section 33 comes out of that. And at those negotiations, I was there, uh, the provinces, including British Columbia, Alberta, Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, PEI, Saskatchewan, we were not prepared to go ahead with that patriation unless Section 33 was a part of it. And so, that was part of the grand bargain. So how Same would Canada... The provinces gave concessions on other areas of the patriation, so too the federal government and those who had posed 33 in the beginning had to make their compromise. All right, Freeman Peckford, how would... a wonderful uh, uh, outlet to ensure that the provinces still have some of the le legitimate powers yeah. that they had under the original Constitution. Now, if you don't mind, I, I have to challenge the Prime Minister on your program right now. I heard him say here on your program when you introduced me that... What Premier Ford is doing is overriding people's rights and freedoms. That is untrue. I am sorry, very sorry to hear the Prime Minister of Canada saying that. Nobody's vote is taken away. Everybody's free to express themselves. Everybody's free to assemble. Press is free. Everything as, as has always been. That there may be more people in a riding or in a district or a ward in one ward than there is now. That may be so, as the bill uh, says, but everybody still votes and everybody can still express their views on that bill and any other bill. So for the Prime Minister of this country to say that somehow Premier Ford's bill overrides our rights and freedoms is a mistake and is an exaggeration, a, a blatant exaggeration of what is actually happening and therefore allows people to get upset about something for which there's no foundation. If we hadn't had the notwithstanding clause, if the Charter had not been become part of Canada's reality, if the Constitution had not been repatriated, would this country essentially be different today than it, than, than it is? I doubt it. I doubt it. I doubt it very, very much. We were already practicing and exercising a lot of the freedoms which were codified, if you will, in the patriation document. One area, of course, is that we wouldn't have, uh, when we talk about bringing the Constitution home, the full amendment uh, of, the, of the Constitution would still engage uh, the, uh, the Parliament in, in London. Of course, it would only be a, a sort of a formality, but nevertheless, symbolically, it means a lot. Uh, but as far as the other area, of course, is in, in the Aboriginal rights, where Aboriginal rights are recognized, the treaties are recognized. But once again, the courts have interpreted that very, very liberally. 
and the Aboriginal peoples have been able to uh, ascertain uh, additional uh, rights and freedoms that perhaps wouldn't be as far along right now. Although there were court decisions before 1982 were leading in the direction that where we are today. So it's a very, very good question. And of course, it is hypothetical. But based upon what we know, and what came before 82, and not what came after, the question would only be in degree, not in kind. Mm -hmm. Premier Peckford, have you seen a time, uh, I shouldn't ask ask it that way, because there have been tumultuous times in, in our fairly recent past in Canada. But here we are with Mr. Bernier appearing. Here's the man who almost won the Conservative Party leadership. And now he has reemerged with his own party. It's the, we don't know much about it other than it's the People's Party. He joins me tomorrow for a live interview at the top of the program. Maxime Bernier will. But are you, would you say that he has a chance, and I predicated it on some highly profiled or quite highly profiled members of the Conservative Party moving over to Mr. Bernier's People's Party, I think that would create the kind of interest from media where Bernier and and Trudeau's exchanges might create a bit of a problem, a significant problem for Andrew Scheer. Do you think, you know, you know, political world inside out, does he have the time, does Maxime Bernier have the time to create the kind of political apparatus that he has, even if it has to, even if it's nuts and bolts, to be ready next October? The answer to that, the short answer to that question is no. I don't think he does to win a government in that period of time. I think there is, you know, some heavy slogging to, to, to occur. But I think, as I said earlier, he has tapped into a chord, which I think is going to be, become more prominent in Canada as we see uh, the MP having less power, the Parliament having less power, yeah. uh, the judges liberally interpreting something uh, which was not intended at all. Uh, when individuals feel that, they, that their power is no longer what it should be, talk, talk about infringing upon or overriding people's rights and freedoms that, Premier, that Prime Minister Trudeau talked about. What's happening is, is that all the power is going uh, to the cabinet or to the prime minister's office and to the courts and to the bureaucracy. So I think Bernie has a chance over the next three or four years. Uh, if he actually develops a program along the lines of what he's talking about, freer trade, remember, the last report on competitiveness for the world out of 137 countries, the U.S. is number two, we're number 14. So obviously our own biggest trading partner is doing much better at being competitive than we are, and that comes back to Mr. Bernier's point about use supply boards, for example, as one example. Yeah, here's the question. I have to I have to ask you this one. I'm well, well, we're right at this point, because a number of people have suggested to me they looked at what happened to the Progressive Conservative Party of of Ontario, with the leadership change with only six to eight weeks before the actual vote, uh, the leadership race a brief one, and then Mr. Ford emerging as the leader and winning a significant majority government in a very short period of time. And they said to me, if Ford could do it. Why can't uh, Maxime Bernier do it? And I said, emotionally, I would say to you, he can do it. But what the cons- what, what Mr. Ford had in place was a, uh, the structure of the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario, which is what Maxime Bernier does not have uh, on the federal level. There's no in-place structure for him to lean on it. He's going to have to carry the ball himself and and convince Canadians 
You can actually govern the country. But I think there's a I think there's a constituency waiting to vote for him. I agree. I agree. But I think the problem is is that as far as you went with your argument there that he does have a chance because um, it's like Ford. But unlike Ford, what you had in Ontario was two or three governments that were unbelievably incompetent and brought Ontario to the point where it was the first or second most indebted sub-sovereign unit on the planet. So I think there is a difference. That's true. Yeah. For, for all I oppose many of the things Mr. Trudeau has done, we are not yet as a nation in the same circumstance nationally as sub-sovereignly Ontario was. But we're heading in that direction nationally as well. And so I think Mr. Bernier has an opportunity if he articulates the appropriate program of more individual freedom, the accentuating property rights, totally free trade between the provinces as well as with the United States, uh, and articulates that well, I think he will gather a lot of prominent people, and he will also gather a lot of small, ordinary citizens who believe that they still might have some stake in their future. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned last hour about an interview I had with Brian Mulroney, and I talked to them. I sort of maneuvered. You know the story. I maneuvered them into the one-on-one full-hour Power's interview. Power going on my phone here. I don't know if I can hear you any much okay. longer. Are you? Okay. So, Premier, please go ahead and make a, a, a give us, share your last thoughts on what you think is going to happen with the notwithstanding clause as far as Mr. Ford is concerned. What do you think? What's your prediction about what's going to happen here? Well, I hope my, my prediction and my hope is is that uh, the Premier Ford will be successful in, in passing his Section 33 and bringing about a more efficient municipal system in the province of Ontario, which will become a sort of a lighthouse for other parts of Canada to ensure that the balance between the municipal power and the provincial power is more effective in running that part of the country. All right. Premier Preckford, thank you so much for the time. Really, really appreciate it. I hope you'll come back. Thank you very much. I'd love to come back. Thank you, sir. Premier Brian Peckford. Let me play something for you now. Uh, sort of going flying by the seat of my pants here because I was just fascinated by what uh, Premier Peckford had to say. And we're a little bit off our schedule. But I want to play back for you the uh, interview. It's about three minutes of... Uh, Global News, Queen's Park Bureau Chief in Ontario, Travis Donraj, uh, he had with Doug Ford. Listen to this. We've got an exclusive interview right now with Premier Doug Ford. It has been uh, a little bit of an interesting 24 hours, 48 hours here at Queen's Park. Uh, Mr. Premier, uh, obviously a lot of people were shocked by this decision to invoke the notwithstanding clause. Uh, first off, I, wanted, I want you to tell us why you did that and also you made of yesterday's protest by the NDP. Well, the reason we, we did it, we uh, campaigned on reducing the size and cost of government. Uh, one of the engines of Ontario was Toronto. Uh, Toronto is the most dysfunctional political arena uh, in the country. Uh, subways haven't been getting built, and as I always said, uh, David Miller couldn't uh, build subways. My own brother Rob couldn't build subways. He could save money, but couldn't build subways. And John Tory hasn't been able to, to build any transit as well. Uh, we want a partner that is uh, lean and efficient, that uh, we can get transit built. There's a housing crisis here in the city. Uh, infrastructure is crumbling underneath our feet. 
Uh, we need a partner that can get things moving, not uh, like City Hall that defers everything uh, and uh, just keeps putting everything off. Of Scarborough Subway, I feel so sorry for the people of Scarborough. Uh, they've, they've been waiting uh, years and years, and it was voted on eight separate times. Nothing's getting done out in Scarborough. You know, there are a lot of people that uh, agree with you that they think that government should be smaller, but there is a large part of the population as well that thinks that this is an extreme uh, measure. And the NDP, they said that they pulled the stunt yesterday uh, and were let out because they wanted to protest this extreme move. Well, the, what the NDP is doing, they're protecting a, a, a small group of downtown NDP councillors. Uh, they should be focusing on building transit and housing and infrastructure, but it's not happening. We had 18 votes uh, on this in favour of uh, reducing the size of, of council. I always say good governance is seven to nine people on any board. You could have 20 of the smartest people on any uh, board and nothing gets done. Uh, more things will get done a lot quicker with 25 councillors than 47 and they didn't consult with anyone when they went from 44 to 47. So there was an emergency meeting at City Hall today and just the last question to you, uh, you know, what are you going to do if there are more legal challenges when it comes to this? Well, let's uh, cross that road when we, when we come to it. Uh, we've uh, appealed this and there's a reason uh, why, and I'm not saying this judge made a mistake, uh, we may disagree, but there's a reason why they have other levels of, of uh, courts. Because sometimes judges make mistakes and then you have to appeal it and there's thousands and thousands of cases that have been appealed from another judge. Uh, that's, that's what we're hoping for uh, and people will judge us. Not, not a single judge won't, won't judge us in four years, the people will. They're the ultimate decision makers uh, at the end of the day. If we don't get the job done in four years, they have the right to fire us. All right, lots Thank more you. to come on this story. We'll see you Thank in you. Uh, Payne Court for the plowing yes. next week. Uh, Premier Doug Ford joining us uh, for an exclusive interview. So there, uh, Global News, Queen's Park Bureau Chief and Toronto, Travis Dunraj, interviewing Doug Ford on the notwithstanding clause issue. I spoke yesterday with the Premier of Saskatchewan, you'll hear that interview tomorrow, Scott Moe, who told us that there is legislation, Penn, I hope I'm getting this correct, I think I am, there is legislation moving forward in uh, Saskatchewan where the notwithstanding clause has been attached. And again, Quebec did that with every piece of Quebec legislation after Bourassa enacted the notwithstanding clause to support French primacy legislation. The province of Quebec enacted Bill 62, and every piece of Quebec legislation was retroactively protected, they said, by the notwithstanding clause. Scott York, former Crown attorney, former executive director of the Canadian Police Association, also a senior policy advisor to a federal minister for public safety, and now adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. The, the list of accomplishments of Mr. York are very long. I, I could talk all day about what you've done, uh, and what you're still doing. Now, this case, Scott, and we used to call it just another week in the Canadian justice yeah. system. We had a feature on that. I think we could maybe resurrect that. Unfortunately, but Unfortunately, it appears to be uh, coming back again, doesn't it? It does. Now, the many questions being asked about vetting of this individual, the 28-year-old yeah. who has been uh, charged with first-degree murder. Uh, was he properly vetted? Was he not? What is... What, is, what concerns you about what's going on? Um, really not the, um, I don't, um, I, I have some discomfort at the reaction, you know, of people saying, uh, making a sort of a special uh, issue out of it because the guy was a refugee. 
It is a legitimate question, however, to you know ask whether or not he was appropriately screened. But let's remember where he was coming from, okay? From Syria, which is not exactly a um, stable society, and um, so the the prospect that he would have been properly screened, or that there was even information available that you could screen somebody, is is uh, suspect. There were, however, some rules in place, and I, I know I. I know this because I was involved a little bit. The original plan was to bring them these people to Canada and then screen them. And uh, myself and the uh, frontline officers, the Border Services, the Customs Immigration Union said that's really not a good idea. So that plan was changed. There have been some uh, recent media reports, however, that because of the shortage of frontline officers that resulted from uh, cuts to CBSA, that there may not have been done the screening that should have been done that we were all told about. So it's a legitimate issue to look into that, um, although I must admit, uh, you know, if you think about it, the, uh, where this guy was coming from, the, uh, the notion of, uh, of violence against women was, you know, frequently uh, something done by the police and state authorities. So I'm not sure that uh, how reliable it would have been, but it is a fair question to ask whether or not this was an individual that should have been allowed into Canada. But as you said, um, I think specific to the case, uh, our justice system will now take over and handle this accordingly. You know, no question is out of bounds and no issue is as untouchable when it comes to coming to a proper decision on what happened to this 13-year-old child. You know, it's the same as if you remember when you and I first started talking about um, uh, correctional issues. It was not just a complaint about the correction system, but rather that the individuals were people who had been released early from custody and were on the streets and thus able to commit crime. That's right. Okay, and so we looked at it from that perspective of, frankly, crime prevention. Okay, should this individual have been on the street and able to commit the, the, that crime? And I think that's an appropriate lens to look at this case. But this is, we also want to be careful, I think, uh, as well, too, as to not um, expand the application of this, as this is somehow something that is uh, calls into question the validity of uh, immigration itself. No, but what happens is the people do remember, for example, when Canadians, by majority, questioned whether or not uh, Syrian refugees could be properly vetted in Syria, that the former premier of Ontario and the current premier of Quebec accused anybody who had those thoughts of being racist. Yeah, although what I'm getting at, though, is I'm not sure that there would necessarily be any vetting that could have, you know... No, I understand. Yeah, no, you're... ...this kind of behavior. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? But it is, it is, it does bring back a lot of memories, what you just said, because we talked about individuals who had a hundred or more criminal convictions who were still being allowed out, still getting out early, committing uh, crimes while they were technically still eligible for a... For a, for a sentence that was handed out years earlier. Yeah, and once we started to ask questions, Correctional Service of Canada went into overdrive and started covering everything up. They did. That was the other thing. That they did, and then they started talking about unconvicted individuals living, living in, the, in community. the community. Yes, sir. You and I. You and I. That was a direct quote, ladies and gentlemen, from Correctional Service Canada when Scott New York and I were on the air with them, a representative for Correctional Service Canada addressing Scott and me said, well... You, uh, un- non-convicted individuals living in the community, as though we were just waiting. 
just yeah. just just waiting to All convict right. us. It was that notion as well too that the people remember this that the people they were dealing with were clients. That's right. It's, it was in the handbook. Right. So it was the in the introduction, the preamble to the handbook that was given to everyone who was incarcerated. And uh, in in the preamble, they were referred to as clients. But you know, Roy, that is part of what I, I must admit uh, still frustrates me, because it's that dealing with the repeat offenders. Uh, and, you know, we have a system that is based on um, offender rehabilitation. I think that makes good sense. But it's not a one-size-fits-all. And people will be surprised at this. It's still, although it's a crime to commit, uh, to uh, breach the conditions of your bail or your probation, it's not a crime to breach the conditions of your parole, okay? There are no legal parole eligibility restrictions placed on somebody because they commit new crimes while on parole. Like, there's, in my opinion, there are still a lot of things that we haven't done that we should be doing Mm -hmm. in relation to repeat offenders. Now, there is, you talk about rehabilitation. There are programs inside Correctional Service Canada that are excellent, like CORCAN, and uh, where individuals who want to do this and live by the rules that are established in order to get into the program are provided with not just a certificate from the institution for having completed a course in electrics or or motor mechanics, you know, the, being a yeah. car technician, you actually get the journeyman certificate from the province in which you are incarcerated. So when you're released, you have something that allows you to go and get a job. Get a stake Would, in society and have a reason yeah. for not committing crimes. Exactly. Yeah, and, you, and you've already shown the interest by yeah. getting involved in Corcan, and I was on the advisory board for the Federal Public Safety Minister for Corcan, and it was just a a great program. Back to Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney in Alberta and uh, adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University now. So that case in British Columbia concerning the 13-year-old Marissa Shen, that one is one where people are emotionally invested, and that has to be handled properly, and I've seen some I've seen some statements made that disturb me because it sounds like it sounds like Scott. There are some people saying you shouldn't be asking this question or asking that question. That's just my interpretation of it. Um, That's my interpretation of it. I, I think there was uh, because of the fact that there was a reaction to the uh, the fact that this guy was a Syrian refugee. I think people are trying to be supportive of the, you know, refugee uh, uh, group I get or it. non-citizens. I get it. By saying, like, don't hold everybody accountable. And nobody is. But, well, you know, but, but, but it's But it doesn't need to be, buddy, it doesn't need to be said. I, I think the emotional response is understandable. Let's not overreact. Yeah, well, you know, you, Mr. Trudeau tends to immediately point fingers and blame, um, you know, and that, anyway... There are things that need to be said, and there will be said, and it's it's time to allow folks to get things off their chests as well. there are legitimate well. systemic questions to ask that require answers, yes. They do. I'm, I'm, uh, and, and part of what needs to, what we need to do, I think, uh, and all of us as Canadians, is to make sure that that actually takes place and doesn't just get yes, buried. and don't get we lost. about with Correctional Service of Canada. And don't get lost in political correctness where correct. you feel you can't ask questions. Yeah, correct. Now, I love this headline, deportation halted because man's gang tattoos could cause people to think 
He's in a gang. I know, eh? Adrian Humphreys. Brilliant. Perfect. Brilliant. Okay, folks, I hope you're all sitting down for this one because uh, this is sort of an example of, you know, like uh, whether it's judicial activism or judicial idiocy. Uh, this is a guy, um, Rene uh, Pacheco, uh, who back in um, 2016 was arrested on a bunch of uh, criminal charges. He's a non-citizen. Uh, he is from El Salvador, and um, he was uh, once he was arrested, and because I'm sure that he was a non-citizen, Canada Border Services Agency got involved to see you know what was up with him. He is apparently, and I saw the photographs, absolutely covered in MS-13, which is a, a very, very violent international gang, uh, Maro Salvatuksha, that are just a really, really violent uh, group, uh, well-known uh, certainly in the, uh, in the Western world. And he had all of these tattoos, including, you know, the blood drop for having killed somebody and the uh, number 13 tattooed on his head. He's interviewed by them. He actually admits to them and brags about being a member of the MS-13, gives, you know, examples of things. How he's got, they got a local sort of chapter in Toronto as well, too. And CBSA uh, takes action on it, as they are uh, in, not only entitled, but I would say obliged to do. What uh, being a member of that uh, means he is inadmissible under Section 37 of our Immigration and Refugee Protection Act. They start the process going forward. Uh, it's found to be um, legitimate. He's ordered deported. Uh, he appeals the decision in our, you know, ridiculous system that needs to be fixed about uh, all these different appeals. He appeals the decision to a federal court. Federal court judge upheld his deportation order as being reasonable given the evidence. But our system then allows him to apply for what's called a pre-removal risk assessment. And he's claiming that he would be in danger if he's returned to El Salvador because people there would take his tattoos of evidence that he was actually in a gang which, according to what he told the CBSA, he was. Uh, the judge uh, rejected the, um, uh, his uh, assertions, but this is Canada, so he has a uh, further right of appeal, and he appealed the uh, decision. And the uh, judge recently, uh, just uh, last week, uh, said that uh, she was, Justice Susan Elliott, that uh, she was not satisfied that there had been an appropriate review of the evidence in relation to the tattoos and the meaning of it and the risks that he faced and so start the process over again like nut, that is nuts and and frankly that kind of in my opinion um, judicial intervention and judicial arrogance and judicial activism is something that is that has consequences potentially uh, for canadians because these individuals you and i've discussed cases before where they're being held by cbsa mm-hmm. but courts order them released mm-hmm. because it takes so long to remove people yep. This is a good example, in my opinion, of systemic problems that create public safety risks. There's one word that comes to mind, alarming. There are many words that come to mind. Alarming is one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what's the story about self-induced intoxication? Yeah, this one is, I think, in some ways, uh, Roy, this is perhaps the most alarming of all. And I, I don't know whether you got it. I sent you this morning a copy of the magazine from when I was with the CPA. We had a magazine called Express. It's from December 1994, and it's myself and our president, uh, Neil Jessup at the time, great guy, uh, on the front steps of the Supreme Court saying, the Supreme Court of Canada, what's going on? 
and it was a bunch of uh, goofy decisions. No, I haven't so, seen that yet, Scott. And we decided that we would go and we would, you know, and we were really the first group to publicly analyze and criticize what was then the growing judicial activism. This case, one of the cases that, that caused this was uh, there was a ruling from the Supreme Court that said that somebody who was really, really drunk, not necessarily to the point of being an automaton or insane, but they didn't, they were really drunk, self-imposed, self-induced drunkenness, mind you, that some uh, Supreme Court justice decided that, well, you know, even though that, that's not recognized as a defense, being really, really drunk like that should be a defense. And so he struck down a rape charge against this uh, guy named uh, Davio, and there were significant outrage, as you can imagine. I worked actually very closely with then-Justice Minister Alan Rock, and we put together a bill that specifically included a very um, lengthy and detailed preamble, in other words, an explanation about why Parliament was doing this, the public interest that was involved in it, and the law was changed, and it's Section 33.1 of the Criminal Code. Okay, I have about a minute. I have a minute. I have a minute. So what happened? Bottom line is, this judge decides that, uh, uh, well, I don't really care about that. I don't think that that's really the case. And even though I'm required to consider it, she decides to, uh, and it's uh, Justice Spies, she decides to substitute her opinion for what the preamble, in other words, the Parliament of Canada said was the rationale. That is an arrogance that, in my opinion, uh, and I've recommended it, the Ontario government should be appealing this case, and if successful, they should also file a complaint against this judge, because that level of arrogance and activism it should not be a part of our justice. It is time to elect judges. Well, I know you disagree. Or time to, you know what, I think an accountability mechanism is, uh, is the way to go, but I think we are heading in a direction that we're going to need something. There are too many cases where judges' views have... Superseded legislative action and laws passed. Look at the Jordan case, where they're actually making what the policy should be in terms of delay. They're setting the time limits arbitrarily. Unreal. Unreal. Always good talking to you, Scott. Thank you for the time today. Okay, Roy. Scott Newark. He's an adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University now. We we once had a government minister, federal minister on the air, and uh, was trying to make a point, was trying to... uh, destroy Scott's point. Without a word of a lie, that minister was in tears. And it was a guy. I think it was, yeah. Uh, because Mr. Newark, when he gets going, it's kind of hard to stop. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.